the other thing that's really interesting to me, to me is fueling the rise of product is if you roll back the clock 10 years ago, when we talk about the cost of technology and the cost of starting a company, it was so much higher. So that means that at that period of time, there was a barrier to entry purely because the technology cost so much. Now, because that technology cost has gone down, there's not as many barriers of entry or someone coming in and creating a business. So what matters is the quality of the business that you create, how great the product is, how great the user interaction is. And, and really, there's probably there's tough priority trade-offs about which feature do I do first or second. And I don't know, in, a, in an increasingly competitive marketplace, that's a product person that's going to help to make those trade-offs. And they can be critical when you're kind of in a race to become the best provider in a space. Welcome to The Syndicate the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome to The Syndicate, the show where we get the world's most interesting and successful investors. Today we've got one of them, Catherine Ulrich on the program, Managing Director at First Mark Capital. Thanks for coming today, Catherine. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm excited to be here. So I like to keep the intro short so that you can give us just a brief summary. So what's your story? How'd you get into venture and startups? Well, I guess I, in some degree, I got into venture serendipitously. Um, my background was always leading product and tech teams. I spent uh, part of my career as the Chief Product Officer at Weight Watchers. And then went from that and was the CPO over at Shutterstock, the two-sided stock content marketplace. And from there, uh, I actually was considering what I wanted to do next in my career. Had always been part of, I'd say, the First Mark family. First Mark is kind of known for its variety of events in the space. But got to know uh, the First Mark partners really well. And that led to me making a jump into the venture world. And candidly, I, you know, I was not planning or crafting a career that meant moving to the investing side. Um, for me, it was uniquely First Mark and meeting the other partners here. And also, honestly, learning a little bit more about how First Mark approaches VC that brought me over into the investing side. Do you get worried when jumping from one to the other? Is this right? Oh, oh yeah. And maybe, I mean, I approached that question before I joined a lot. So maybe probably because of my product background, I probably researched and checked out what this role would require for eight to nine months. Um, and I did the very producty thing in terms of doing a ton of user interviews. So I talked to a bunch of founders that are my friends or in my network about what they loved and what they hated about their VC partners. I talked to folks who had been in product roles or operating roles and had gone into venture and, and kind of got the story of both people who had gone in and left and come back out or people that had gone in and loved it. So I feel like academically, I kind of had really understood the role um, and I've kind of heard what it feels like to move into the venture space, you know, what it feels like your first year versus fifth year versus 10th year. But certainly now I'm living that role. Uh, and so I guess I'd say it was a, you know, considered move, but it's been fantastic. And it's been fantastic. Things are transitioning well then? Yeah, I mean, I, the, I, I love the role. I love the chance to talk with so many founders and entrepreneurs I think the thing, having been someone who, you know, led product and tech teams, the thing, there were a couple of things I was worried I would miss. And one of that was that dynamic of actually leading an organization um, and creating a really great team. I think what's been interesting to me is there's actually, I feel like quite a gap in the market of more as a product oriented VCs. So I guess what I've enjoyed is actually being able to spend time with founders and provide value to them. You know, we do relatively few investments, but I'm meeting with folks all the time and I 
from my background, find that there's always a bunch of things where I can add value, even an initial meeting. And so that's been, I guess, more rewarding than I maybe thought it would be. What's the difference between you and a career VC in terms of how you evaluate companies? Well, it's funny. Honestly, I feel like I don't know if I can fully answer that question because I'm like a, uh, I'm one year into a job that maybe it takes 10 years to figure out if you're good at it. So I, I kind of joke that, um, I mean, I'm new into this role. So I feel like my answer versus a career VC, I'm probably only understanding at the very surface how someone who's been a career VC would analyze things. I think, I think the way that I more think about it is how do I look at deals? Maybe that's a little bit different because I come from my product background. And from that lens, I feel like there's a couple truths that come from being a product person that I probably overweight when I look at deals. A big example for me is proximity to the problem that you're solving or the depth at which you understand the problem. You know, I find I definitely gravitate towards founders who have a deep understanding of the problem that they're solving. They've lived it. They've experienced it. They've spent tons of time talking to their prospective customers. Uh, and that resonates with me because uh, it's kind of, it's easy to be superficial about understanding your users. And as a product person, you can kind of tell whether someone has gone deeply and whether, you know, they're recounting stories about specific customers they've talked to and what it was like and what their pain points are. And when I hear that, I just have much more confidence this is the type of founder or team that's going to be able to solve that problem and build a great business around it. So I definitely start from that angle being one of the, the key things for me that I listen for. There's always strengths, but weaknesses tied to that. What's the biggest weakness that product-focused people have? Um, well, biggest weakness? Um, <laughs> I mean, I'd actually say the interesting thing about senior or seasoned product people is at the end of the day, you're actually, you're balancing three things. You're balancing the user experience of the product, the business or financial terms and experience of the product, as well as the technical side. So, you know, but actually the strengths of me as a product person, if I had to grade myself out of those three skills, I always came from a more business financial side into product. But that being said, I'd say that, you know, the weakness is that I have not spent years as an investment banker in finance, understanding all the background of nitty gritty different ways to structure a deal and set terms. So that is actually the area of it that I'm ramping up as quickly as possible. And I'm very lucky that I've got very experienced partners who have brought me up to speed very quickly on that and who actually work with, you know, all of our companies. But I'd say if anything, like my strengths in the product side means that I'm just less of a, a little less of a finance person originally. Would that be the same for founders? That's more what I meant. If you see products focused founders. Oh, you two mean for the founders. Product focused founders. Uh, I, I mean, I guess I see any, like someone that understands deeply the problem that they're solving. I believe that you're going to be able to solve for everything else if you solve a meaningful problem, meaning the way that you charge for the business is going to work out if you have a really compelling uh, product that's solving a meaningful problem. Obviously, if it's not that big of a problem, then you're not going to be able to charge for it and probably won't make a lot of money. But I actually believe that if you start with the user problem, the other things kind of fall into place. So, uh, but certainly, you know, every founder that I meet has some area of their skill set that they need to round out with hiring or having a co-founder on their team. So I guess what I say is I just look for people who can identify that and are proactively solving for it. Can you tell me a little bit more about the, the Rockstar product vision that you talk about? Sorry, say that again? The Rockstar product vision. I was reading, yeah, you've written on Medium a bit about the, the ladder of needs and how to build a successful product company. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I guess the Rockstar product vision, like where that came from was what I saw when I was leading product teams is that, you know, there's many skills a product person should have and should develop. Uh, it's actually what I just mentioned, the balance between business and financial skills with technical skills and then kind of UX or design skills. But that's kind of the core capabilities that a product person should develop and have. What I saw was that the 
almost the most important skill at the top of all of that is the ability to sell your team on a vision. What I mean by that is both I've experienced it myself. I've seen it with the product managers within my teams. When you have a PM who can sell a team on the vision, you end up getting this 10x performance of the team. Meaning you're not talking about working certain hours of the day, but someone who is totally sold on the vision will just end up in this kind of flow state of being super productive. And I just think amazing things happen when you can get a team to perform that way. And so the question I used to ask myself is how as a leader can you make that replicable? How can you take that skill and try to train everyone on your product team or your organization to help inspire everyone and make them perform TEDx? And so the technique that I'm a big believer on is actually, I kind of created this thing that I call the ladder of needs. Really, it's a mashup of two experts. One is uh, Clay Christensen has written great articles about this jobs to be done framework, which says that you know, whenever a customer hires or buys your product, they're hiring it to do a job for them. And then I'm also a big fan of Simon Sinek, who wrote about the power of why uh, and start with why. Um, and so when you put the two together, there's this framework that I feel like is a great starting point for you to make sure you have a compelling vision. And, uh, and that framework is kind of this ladder. It's got three levels. The bottom uh, level of the ladder is when you focus on identifying what job your product does for your customers. So that's the what, and I'll come back to you. The next step in the ladder is describing how your product does that job. So if your what is, let's just take Amazon, if your what is I sell books online, the how is I sell them and ship them to you the fastest and I have the lowest guaranteed price. And then the very top tier of the ladder is, is why you do that. So, you know, and the why is usually a much more deeper rationale for it. So an example for Amazon would be, I'm truly just making your life better, your life easier because all the books get sent to you faster. You know, I think, so this ladder of moving from identifying what job your product does to why, to how your product does that job, to then at the top, why your product does it, ends up being a great framework to make sure that you've actually identified your why. And this framework, I find if you go through this exercise, it usually becomes a great way to sell your team on uh, the initiatives that you have underway. It actually also becomes a great way to look at your product roadmap. As companies are growing or expanding or launching new product lines, you know, most of the mistakes I've seen happen from not having a clear why defined and then therefore you're going too far from your core with the product versus if you really understand that, it's easy to, to identify the right product extension. So that was, that's a framework I'm a big believer on. And, you know, in general, I guess what I feel like is that the product space is a function. There's tons written about marketing or finance. In fact, if you think of it, like a marketer, if, if someone was to come to me and say, I want to hire a chief marketing officer, and I was to say, okay, well, what type of CMO? They're going to have all this vernacular to describe that role. They're going to be able to say, well, actually, for our business, SEO is really important, or brand, or display, or affiliate, or content marketing, or, I mean, all these different adjectives to try to figure out what right type of person. It was always amazing to me that when folks in my network would come to me and say, okay, I'm looking to hire a product manager or a chief product officer. And I asked them, okay, well, what type of product person? You, you don't actually get a great answer. You'll, maybe, maybe you'll get an answer that says, well, they must have worked in this type of business before, but there's not really been a way to describe the skill set. So this has been kind of a, something I've been looking to solve is to help to grow the product function. 
because fundamentally, I think the better product people we have within organizations, the better the organizations will also perform. That makes a lot of sense. Have you made any progress on defining the different types of product people? I ha- so I, I have. I've written, I will say, you can, I've written one post on Medium that, to be totally candid, it has six types of product people. That post is funny because I think on Medium, you know, I, I think I originally had 10 types and then I candidly kind of dumbed it down to six because I thought people wouldn't read past six. So I maybe need to A-B test that, but I identified the six types because there's just a variety of, of skills. And based on the type, they usually come from different backgrounds or uh, even if they moved into the product, into the product world after being in a different function, that can help you identify the type of product person that they are. So basically to summarize, a product person is someone with a specific skill set, a dream on how something should be done, and then the ability to pull everyone else together towards that vision. Yes. And then maybe the only thing I'd add on that is that there are, they're just basic skill sets of how you run great, for example, agile development practices that are, to me, the you know, foundation of also understanding how to be a great product person. Okay. I know product is becoming increasingly important, especially as enterprise products have to become actually appealing because who wants to use good products at home and shitty products at work? No, I think what that's else? really important. The other thing that's really interesting to me, to me is fueling the rise of product is if you roll back the clock 10 years ago, when we talk about the cost of technology and the cost of starting a company, it was so much higher. So that means that at that period of time, there was a barrier to entry purely because the technology cost so much. Now, because that technology cost has gone down, there's not as many barriers of entry or someone coming in and creating a business. So what matters is the quality of the business that you create, how great the product is, how great the user interaction is. And, and really, there's probably there's tough priority trade-offs about which feature do I do first or second. And I don't know, in, a, in an increasingly competitive marketplace, that's a product person that's going to help to make those trade-offs. And they can be critical when you're kind of in a race to become the best provider in a space. If you're in a race to become the best provider, are you in a game that is naturally not largely winnable? So it's not venture scale? I don't know. I guess what I believe is, you know, if you look at like Peter Thiel's talk about, you know, zero to one and going into a space where no one else has been and the chance to become a monopoly. I think that's certainly true. I think in a market where there's fewer barriers to entry, I almost many businesses that start, it is a race to first be the market leader. And if you start first, you have a huge benefit for that. Certainly some businesses have some unique advantage from an IP lens or from a proprietary data store to let them build their product. But I see a lot of businesses where you're really just trying to scale and outscale your company, other companies in the market in order to be the dominant player. I mean, I, you know, there's a million examples, you know, and even, even in the early days, let's even take their first search guys, right? Like in the, in the early days, there were still several providers and you were talking about which company, obviously now it's Google, but made the best moves with their product and the smartest moves so they could become the monopoly. And then you, you know, counteract that with a company like Uber versus Lyft and the other ride shares where, you know, Uber became the dominant and probably obviously now because everything that's happened is more competition, but they became the dominant because they scaled quickly and probably because their product had some small nuances that were slightly better. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I think about space. Yeah, the startups have to reach scale before the other startups and before the, the big player learns to innovate. Exactly. Yep. It's an interesting chicken egg type problem. So with, uh, with your investing now and what you're focused on with Firstmark, what, what's your thesis? What are specific industries that you are interested in and why? So I, um, there's really two parts to answer that. One is I, am, I do look right now for businesses where I feel like my background and experience can provide 
insights and leverage into that company. So having been at the companies I've been at. So that has led me into things like health and wellness deeply. But probably health and wellness and another example would be tools that empower product and tech teams since I've led those organizations. And because I believe so deeply in the rise of product as a function, I think there's going to be a lot of enterprise tools that help that function. Beyond that, the thing that I also like to look at are industries where the business and the customer incentives are not aligned today. And those industries are interesting to me because I think it's just a matter of time before that changes. And I think they're ripe for disruption. So that paradigm where incentives aren't aligned, that is very true in healthcare. That's why you know the first investment I made was in a company called Parsley Health, which is a new form of primary care for consumers. But in healthcare alone, the incentivized, very sadly, are not aligned. I mean, obviously, a patient coming into a doctor wants to get well, while a doctor's motivation in their heart is to help that patient get well. What they're actually incentivized to do is see a huge, massive volume of patients versus actually focusing on the quality of care or even having the time to provide the right care. So that's just one example of where the incentives aren't aligned. Likewise, I'm kind of fascinated by the real estate sector. And we at Firstmark have made a couple investments in in the real estate disruptive space because real estate is also a space where the incentives aren't aligned. You know, it's, it's amazing to me, just as one small example, that a buyer's agent is sold, but is paid by the seller of a house. When you think about the fact that they're getting commission based on the price that the home sold for, you are paying someone to negotiate on your behalf and get you the lowest price, and yet they get paid a higher commission based on a higher price for the house. So it's this, this does not make sense that the whole market is set up that way. So those kind of spaces are ones that I get really interested in um, because uh, I, think, I think over the next couple of years, you, every business and industry will need to be customer centric. The other, I guess, interesting lens that I take, which comes probably from my days back at Weight Watchers, is categories of products. I'll describe it as where you have a, I call it the dopamine chasm. So dopamine, right, is this response in your brain, usually a positive response. So when you look at behavior change and you're you're trying to change someone's behavior, you have them do a new task and then you usually want to give them some sort of reward. So they have this like spike of dopamine of feel good within their body. Some experiences that I've seen have this dopamine chasm, meaning if you were to kind of just imagine plotting this, like someone's going along through their day and then the dopamine starts to creep up, which means they're feeling good. And then if it suddenly drops down, way down, and then slowly comes back up. So imagine that kind of spike and drop in this. And maybe I'll just, I'll give you one example of where I think there's a dopamine chasm in real estate is actually, if you think about buying a house, it happens on the inspection. So imagine you've gone through and you've searched and you've seen all these houses and now you start to tour the house. And now you see a house and you fall in love with it. Basically, you're walking around this house, you're picturing your family there, you're feeling pretty awesome, you're moving up this dopamine curve, and you're falling into this house and you're, you put an offer in, which means like you're, you're committed, you're excited about this, you're already picturing moving in. And then all of a sudden you have an inspector come to the house and the inspector, his job actually is to walk around the house and basically tell you why this house you've fallen in love with has all these problems, right? So he starts to tell you all the problems with the roof and the plumbing and that there's whatever, all these issues with the house. And you have this dopamine chasm, all of a sudden you drop way down because you're feeling terrible about this house and you've got to negotiate it down and you're figuring out all the things you have to fix. And then uh, you know, obviously a lot of people get on that beyond that chasm because they do end up buying the house and they kind of creep their way back up. But that is like a dopamine chasm where I think anytime you see that, I believe that it's a product opportunity to smooth that out because no one wants to go through those more horrific moments. 
And, you know, I would, one of the investments um, that we made was in a, a company called Perch, which is, you know, helping to buy houses directly from sellers on spot. And therefore, if you buy a Perch house, we also know that it is a certified kind of pre-owned house, meaning we've taken that dopamine chasm out of the buying process. When you buy a Perch branded home, you know, it's going to meet a certain set of requirements. So that, like, that is just one example. But anytime I see those customer chasms and kind of the feel-good dopamine response, uh, I think it represents a big product opportunity. Not just that, but the time gap. I mean, it's like Amazon having add to cart now. It's the same thing with the homes. The, the more you compress yes. the time frame, the higher the conversion. Exactly. The higher on the, the conversion, f- the better the whole experience. On the flip side, though, the better the whole experience usually. But what are your thoughts on companies like Facebook and where we can play the dopamine game possibly a bit too far? Oh, that's interesting. So I, um, I guess I, I do really worry about that. In fact, I have looked at a bunch of different companies that are entering in the space of trying to attack the digital addiction that everyone has. So uh, my philosophy on that is, um, I mean, the hard part is the incentive alignment, right? Is that fundamentally, when you look at the incentives that someone like Facebook has, it is to trigger constant opening of the app. And so I struggle with it because I think that's a business where if you're asking them to pull back on that until they start to see a massive consumer backlash to it, in some ways, you're asking them to take an action that's not aligned with their incentive structure based on how they you know, make money. So I think that's going to be a challenge, which is why they're pivoting into new business models, like thinking about online dating as a new revenue stream where their incentives would be aligned with the consumer. So I think that that's probably, you know, moving into those type of business models is the right move because, again, it aligns the incentives for someone like that. Would that I align am, it, though? Uh, I still want you on Facebook as much as possible if I want you to meet Kim or, or Jill. I do, but, but then at that point, right, for the consumer, they, the thing that they're going on for matchmaking is to find that person the most. So they're trying to find that person. You're trying to help them find that person. I guess the only funky thing that could happen is, I guess, Facebook or any matchmaking is incentivized to keep you paying a monthly fee versus finding your soulmate. But if, if they, um, because then you maybe keep paying. But ultimately, obviously, if you were not successful, then the whole business would, would um, fall apart. So I guess I'd say that it's closer in alignment than certainly where uh, they kind of are today. Unless you were aligned to hook people up in relationships that would ultimately end in divorce, then you really have a recurring customer. And there, there, there you go. Yeah. Facebook's next, uh, next problematic business. I just wanted to take a quick time out to tell you that the Syndicate Podcast comes to you from yours truly, Matt Ward, has no ads and is designed to help angel investors and tech startups succeed. We don't monetize. I do this 100% out of the goodness of my heart and the beautiful networking opportunities to get to chit-chat with some of the smartest, best angels and VCs around the globe, and to help you guys. If you appreciate this, tell an angel or VC about us, refer us to a startup, or even leave a review. If you go to the syndicate.vc slash iTunes, I know it's clunky, it's terrible, but if you leave a review in there, it really helps us with reaching more angel investors and making the program as awesome as possible. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, get some more inside information, get access to our 20-step investor checklist, and get invites into all of our roundtables, including cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, consumer tech with Tim O'Reilly, and more, go to the syndicate.vc. If you go there, subscribe, get on our email list, you'll get all of our best content delivered to you completely for free, right to your email address. If you like this podcast and want more like it, the syndicate.vc. Now, let's get on with our podcast. With the incentive problem, a lot of times this is fixed and it's done via regulation. So, I mean, we've had a lot of problems in the past where the incentives lined up towards something terrible. So we had to break that alignment. Do you see something similar with the attention economy, so to speak? And is that even possible? 
I don't know. This is a hard space. I mean, you get pretty political very quickly when you go in this space. I guess in general in this structure, I think what we're starting to see is that you're starting to see people vote themselves. And I guess that, I generally believe that that is the better path versus regulation, at least in this category, because I think it's uh, hard to understand some of the ramifications of it. But what I mean by that is just look at uh, one of the trends that I, I like and I'm monitoring is maybe a little cliche to call it the mindfulness trend, but there certainly is a trend towards greater mindfulness. I mean, you look at, it actually started, I'd argue, originally with the rise of yoga. If you went back 10 years and looked at the rise of yoga as a fitness trend, and now you look at the rise of apps like Headspace and Calm that have grown enormously in terms of meditation. And I uh, I sometimes get into the really weird stuff that I, I am excited about, which might be the next wave of that. Because meditation, it actually all relates to you know neuroplasticity and being able to train your brain in a certain way. And we can train our brain. And I feel like this digital addiction has caused humans, us as, a, as humans, to be much more outwardly focused versus inwardly focused. And I don't know, honestly, the happiest people I know are the ones that are more inwardly focused, meaning they're focused on growing themselves and developing and improving themselves. They're less focused on, I don't know, outward signals or worried about having a certain degree of significance amongst others in their lives. So I think that this like uh, digital addiction is we're already seeing the consumer driven backlash in the form of of mindfulness. And I think that's just going to continue and going to grow. But that's a backlash. Let's play devil's advocate. That's a backlash of, let's be honest, the the best 20% of society when it comes to their ability to function, think, rationalize. When it comes to the, the average Joe, do you think that that's really going to be a consideration? Or will it always be something where you can kind of incentivize, i.e. control the 80% just by having that, that economic driver? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, um, I don't know. I guess I actually have, well, it, I, it's interesting. It, it actually, to some degree, comes down to what's more addictive. So uh, <laughs> I, you know, I believe actually when people get into, I'll just say something like meditation. When people try meditation out for a period of time, it actually becomes an addictive practice because of how feel good it is. So I think that that could take off and is already taking off across the whole country. It's not just a um, coastal trend or an urban elite trend. It is actually something that's across the entire country, which is why we're seeing the growth curves that we have. Uh, and yeah, actually, that's something that I learned quite a bit at Weight Watchers. I think I was lucky, very lucky in my career at Weight Watchers because it's a it's a global company, but completely diversified across the U.S. It is not like a, you know, California and New York phenomenon. So I had the chance in that role to go and, and visit, you know, women in our centers and locations all over the country. And that gives you like a great awareness of the different types of individuals that live there. Um, I just believe that actually some of these trends that we might think are more on the coast are actually expanding in a big way across the whole country. Okay. You would have, you would have a better control on what's happening on the, on the ground, so to speak. So I, one last question on this topic. Do you use social media? If yes, why or why not? Yes, but I would say very limited. So I, I was actually at Harvard when Facebook was created. So I guess I was one of the first, there was actually a bug one time that told you what number user you were. I was something ridiculous, like in the first 200 users on Facebook. For better or worse, I think because I was on it so early, I've actually rarely been on it ever since. So I have an account, but I almost never go on it. I, since I became a VC, go on Twitter a lot more. And then I go a little bit on Instagram. But I would actually say out of all the folks, I'm very light on my social media use. Uh, and so, you know, maybe I have a bias that I'm someone who prefers to do things offline and more face-to-face. What would you say is your strongest strength? What's led you to be successful today? That's an interesting question. 
Uh, I think my strongest strength is probably more on the EQ side of understanding and appreciating individuals and being able to help figure out what motivates them. It actually, that skill, I think back, that skill was one that I actually started back in college. Um, might sound a little cheesy, but I was a, a coxswain for a men's crew team. And to give it just a little context in case someone doesn't know what crew, but it's... Oh, you really were, you really were a Harvard girl, Yes, you? exactly. There you go. Very uh, Northeast girl. <laughs> but it was, you know, like you've got eight guys. They're all going backwards. They all have their own oars. So they're all, you know, rowing together, but have their own oar they're going to control. And uh, I really learned on that how, you know, when you're in the boat during a practice, you're actually coaching each individual and then coaching the, the boat together. And then when you're in a race, you're actually calling moves and you're letting everyone know where they are because they're going backwards. So they can't see where the other boats are. And they should not be actually looking around because it could destabilize the boat. The best thing is when all the heads are in the boat and the coxswain is, is communicating everyone to the boat. But I think what I learned through that experience of doing that for four years was, you know, every guy in my boat was a very different individual. You know, the thing that, that might motivate one guy would really piss off the next guy if I said it to him. Or my coaching technique for one guy would work for him, but it wouldn't work for the one that was somewhere else in the boat. And I think, you know, that was more of a trial and error about doing things that annoyed people and then doing things that worked and trying to figure that out. But I think that taught me, again, very early on about the differences in motivation for an individual and then how do you get a group to then be collectively motivated towards the same goal. So obviously that, that became a big analogy for me as I went into the working world and worked up and moved into leading product teams. And even to the extent that a product team is, you know, working with a set of developers, it's how do you, how do you really get to know each person individually, figure out what inspires and motivates them and use that to get the most out of a team. So I think that really helped uh, fuel my growth when I was within companies on the product and tech side. And I think, you know, even now that I'm on the venture space, I spend a lot of time with the founders I talk to digging deep on that trying to figure out what motivates them, trying to see actually how well they understand their strengths and weaknesses, and even trying to poke at how they're going to handle difficult scenarios. Because, you know, when we invest, it's the start of a 10-year journey. And so I know there's going to be bumps in the road, and I kind of want to know what kind of person this is and how they're going to handle those bumps. And so that's been an important part of the process um, as I've met with founders now in this capacity. Do you have any advice for listeners, founders, investors, et cetera, in terms of ways that you found to uplevel yourself that they could copy, mimic, or learn from? To up-level you know, my own skills in this space or, or just tips like of how to increase their EQ? In this space in general and then EQ, primarily in terms of personal performance, because if you are better at everything, then well, you're better at everything. Yeah, what's the point? I guess, you know, one thing for me is uh, just having a healthy dose of humility and not being sh- shy to ask people for how you can improve and ask for feedback. A lot of people won't naturally offer up the feedback because they're obviously concerned about how you're going to perceive that. So when you just say to someone, you know, totally openly, you know, I'd love to get your honest feedback. Like what, what could I do better? If you just open the question, I find that the simplest technique, but also the rarest one that most people don't do. And the fastest, you know, I kind of saw this from mentors that I had in my career, the fastest growing people are the ones that are just asking that question all the time and are not worried about hearing what they're not doing well. They're just constantly improving it. So that's, that's my number one piece on that. In terms of, I don't know, investors digging into founders, I guess there's a couple of questions I like to ask. I mean, I always ask a very basic one to the entrepreneurs I meet, which is really just 
what motivates you. It's a very open-ended question, but just for the fact that it's open-ended, you get to see the way someone thinks um, and how they even think about responding to that question. And then I tend to poke a lot at the dynamic if there's co-founders or even if there's not co-founders, why it's a solo person, but the dynamic between them. And what I'm usually looking for is just kind of a healthy team dynamic. So what does that usually mean? That usually means some degree of comfort level of even um, making fun of one another or, or openly identifying, oh, he or she does this well, and I stink at this, but they partner. Like That openness shows to me the level of conversation they've had. You know, I get that when they're meeting an investor, you often don't want to admit any weakness, but at a certain point in the process, seeing that transparency and how you solve for it tells me a lot about how you're going to solve for the future challenges your business you know, will probably meet at some point. I think two of the most valuable skills for product people, correct me if I'm wrong, are the ability to talk to and ask questions of people without leading them and then just the ability to read and expand upon what people say. So I want to I wanna see, A, do you think that? And then B, what's the best way for investors, founders, et cetera, to approach interviews, talking to people, asking questions, getting feedback? Yeah, well, I totally agree with that. I completely agree with that. That's like a, a unique skill that <laughs> I probably underappreciate until you meet some great people that are fantastic at user research. And the way that they frame questions are all about how do you not lead your witness. And, and to your point, that is what makes a great product person is that you're openly listening to the problem. You're not already coming in assuming you know the answers because then it's too easy to validate your own ideas versus listening to the real problem. Um, so I, I certainly think that's true. I guess a technique that I... <laughs> So a technique that I love is you're trying to get to the very honest answer. And I think as humans in some way, we're kind of, we're kind of programmed through this, like, just, you know, I guess, kind of the chit chat that we're likely to have that doesn't really go deep. We're programmed to just kind of give the surface level answers. So I guess I've always been focused on how do you kind of break people's habits and have them go to give you the honest answer, right? Like the honest answer you would give your best friend, even though I've just met this person. I mean, one technique, but this is, you know, this is a technique more as a product person when you're interviewing users, and I wouldn't open with this. Usually, it'd be a little bit later in the interview. But I, I would often use a technique that, you know, for example, for enterprise products, we'd be talking to someone and just say, like, what part of your job do you fucking hate? And I don't use I'm, even that swear word. I'm not using that lately. I'm using that because sometimes words like that like make someone like sit up and listen a little bit more or change the tone of the conversation versus it being this formal interview. And also when you ask that question, many people will change into a totally different person. They would have been this kind of professional upright, telling you how they do their job, talking about all the steps. And then when you ask that question, they'll like often their body language change and they'll be like, oh, well, I hate it when I should do blah, 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 open all these screens and windows and move between and it takes me forever. And, and but when you get to that, like there's a truth in that when you get someone to break through and just like answer in such an honest way. So I guess with anything, I try to figure out how do you get to people to that point that they're having the real honest and deep um, conversation. That's a really good piece of advice. What piece of your job do you fucking hate? <laughs> Um, uh, having to say no to people all the time. <laughs> uh, there's a, a, there's a lot of rejection. Uh, so there's, and, it, and it's, uh, it's just difficult. So yeah, there's just a lot of rejection, right? We see, I see a ton of deals. And I'm only going to do two a year. And there's a lot of things that I think are really interesting. And I love the founder, but there's just one thing that doesn't make it the perfect, perfect thing for me personally. And that's a, it's a harder task. Well, saying no is much better than saying maybe. Leading founders. Yes, that's so true. I mean, I, I think that's something I continue to strive to be better at, which is trying to get to the point where I can say no more efficiently, because certainly understanding what it's like to be on the other side, exactly. A long process is the most annoying thing versus getting that answer. Definitely. 
from a founder perspective, what would you want to leave investors or listeners with? Not a founder, but a, a builder. Um, a builder. Uh, the one thing I'd say is I, having been on a on the builder side and having you know been in a number of board meetings, not as an investor, but on the other side, I think there is a big difference between a smart idea and the ability to execute it. And I remember as being an executive and being in these board meetings, there were some points when I felt like the investor founders were bringing up a smart point. And I remember feeling like, yes, that's true. That's absolutely right. I totally agree. But you're missing the like 5,000 steps of what it takes to get that thing implemented or the complexity. And so I just think the more that we can be, more that like investors can be empathetic about what it takes to get something launched and actually then help the founder figure out how to shortchange that process and do it better and make fewer errors, like the better and the stronger that relationship will, will be. And I personally believe that's more and more what VC should be like. I think I'm lucky because I think that's, that's certainly the model that we have here at First Mark, where we make relatively few inv- investments. And when we do, we give our whole heart and soul behind them and are helping in every way we can. But that's kind of the model. And I just remember feeling like there was just such a gap between a smart idea and the ability to execute it. Absolutely. And it brings up why I love advising companies. So I work with a lot of companies helping them on growth and scaling. And it's beautiful to be able to come up with some incredible ideas and not have to execute on those ideas. Just have (laughs) follow-ups later on. Things are moving smoothly. Things aren't moving smoothly. Here's what we need to do. But doing it yourself is always a, it's always a pain in the ass. Yep. But it's a, yeah, it's a roller coaster and we, you got to ride it if you want to play the game. Totally. Catherine, I want to start to wrap things up. Where's the best place for people to find you, reach out, learn more? So you can definitely just, you know, you can reach out to me on you know, my email, my work email, which is Catherine at firstmarkcap.com. Or as I said, I'm not often on social media, but the one that I am most on is Twitter. So I'm, my nickname is Kit. So my nickname is, uh, so my Twitter handle is Kit underscore Ulrich, uh, but Catherine Ulrich on Twitter. So those are probably the two best uh, methods to reach me. Where did the nickname come from? The nickname was actually my high school and college nickname. Because when I was on sports teams, people thought Catherine was too long and Kit was short and to the point and you could hear it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Anything you want to leave people with? No, I, it's, uh, <laughs> I guess my phrase is onward. I wish the best to all the founders who are listening in. Um, and if I can help in some way on the product side, or if you're sitting in that space where you've got a smart idea, but are having trouble with some execution, I'm happy to try and help. Uh, that's what gets me excited as well. Awesome. And I hope this has been helpful for people. If it has, the syndicate.vc, you can find links and everything in the show notes. And we would love if you leave a review. Helps us rank higher and get more amazing guests like Catherine on. Thanks for coming today, Catherine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, thanks, guys. Till next time. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.